Well, I have a friend at Powerhouse Gym just down the road in Woodward and Highland Park whose brother is a movie producer. It's more independent uh, film uh, industry, but he puts out pretty significant films. He just did something called Project 313. It's got a really interesting storyline. Uh, Emma, actually, will be taking autographs. She's an extra in that movie, so for that reason alone, I want to see it. But uh, I was asking him just this last week, I saw him at a workout, how final production was coming, because it's, I think it's uh, going to be released uh, late spring. And he said, everything's going really well, except we've been struggling and spending hours and hours on the first two minutes of this film. He said, he went on to say, you see, we have about two minutes to set the hook, especially in the independent film uh, industry, two minutes to set the hook where people are either going to keep on going to another film that they might download on the internet, uh, or whether they're going to stay and watch it. Two minutes, he said, to set the hook. And as I was listening to him, I reflected and I even said to this to him, I said, JB, you know, that's a little bit like preaching. Preaching, you have about two minutes to set the hook. You want people to kind of lean forward like, oh, maybe I need to hear this as opposed to sit back and zone out. Brother, you know what I'm talking about. The pastors here know what I'm talking about. So we vary strategically when we write a sermon, we think, what can I do to draw people in? There's various ways to do that. I remember years ago, an older guy, I say older, he was probably about my age now, 54, but he said, anytime you preach, young man, you basically have three groups of people. You got your positives who just are hungry for the word of God, and you can just say, take your Bibles, open up to so-and-so verse, and just walk down and even be a bit dry about it, and they're just eating it up. Then he said the largest group would be neutrals. They're definitely not adversaries. They're open, but maybe they're busy. Uh, maybe they've just had a tough week. Maybe they've got a lot on their mind. They're open, but not necessarily super eager. And you're hoping when you set that hook to get all the neutrals. And then, yes, you have a few negatives. People are here maybe because they have to be. Uh, a child under uh, duty or somebody here under a sense of obligation. And our hope is as we set the hook that even a few of them will lean forward and, and take the bait. So I thought, how do I open up this message? And I thought, well, I just need to mention something that Katie just read about Jesus that probably caught your attention. What did Jesus refer to the woman in Matthew 15 as? A what? So there it is. Here, here's the hook. Jesus calls a woman a dog. That's not what I know about Jesus. How about you? I mean, this is not the kind of verse you'll see on Christian t-shirts and coffee cups and calendars, right? She calls a woman a dog. And even in our culture where dogs get MRIs, sometimes better health care than a better part of the world, even sleep in their master's beds at times, have the run of the house. Even in our culture, we kind of know it, it's probably not the greatest thing to call a woman a dog. However, in that culture, you got to know, it would have been far more offensive. You see, in that culture, dogs were just seen as little more than wild, ravenous, marauding, um, eat-anything scavengers. Do you remember in the Old Testament? Jezebel, her body is 
feasted on, the carcass of this dead woman is feasted on by dogs. And did Jesus not say something about a dog returning to its, to its vomit? In fact, because dogs ate anything, some of the Jewish people begin to refer to Gentiles as dogs because they ate unclean foods. It was, if I can put it this way, a bit of a slur. And since I don't want to be too offensive and too shocking this morning, let me just have a, a slur that would be a little bit more benign. Sometimes Irish people have been called mix, or other times patties, P-A-D-D-Y. And did you know that large police vans were once called paddy wagons because they would pick up and detain those troublesome and often drunk Irish? A paddy was a bit of a slur. This has some kind of connotation here. So this is not what we would expect of Jesus, would we? Jesus calling a woman a dog. It doesn't sound like the compassionate Jesus I know. In fact, it seems kind of cruel. What should also grab our attention is this. A contrast from last week. Last week, you remember, as we're going through Matthew, we saw that the scribes and Pharisees were highly offended, remember, because Jesus and his disciples did not wash their hands as others. Though they had no reason to do that because they had made something unbiblical, biblical. We walked through that last week, legalism. Here you have a woman who some would say, maybe she has a right to be somewhat offended, and yet she is not in the least bit. So here's how we're going to look at the text this morning. We're going to quickly unpack it just to get an overview, and then we're going to circle back real quickly and look at what this incredible story has to say about three things. What it has to say about grace, what it has to say about faith, and then finally, mission. So if I had to give this message a title, it would be this. A desperate woman meets a seemingly disinterested Savior. A desperate woman meets a seemingly desperate Savior. You all with me? Because we're going to dive in now. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And I am totally where I'm going to be in three weeks. I looked at verse 21 without my glasses. That's my message when I return from Africa. Okay, my bad. Here we go. Verse 21, and Jesus went away, now it's clear, from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, the change of scenery between last week and this week in Matthew could not be more shocking. We don't, we don't get it in, in, in our modern culture, but to Jewish sensibilities, it certainly would have been. He just went from a really nice place to a really nasty place. He just goes from the Galilee of the Jews up to Tyre, 25 miles north, and Sidon, 25 miles farther, or 50 miles from Galilee, and he is going to a place that held people that were, where people lived who were considered historically enemies of Israel. These people who lived in Tyre and Sidon. These people were historically arch enemies of Israel who lived up in, in that region. And I just mentioned Jezebel, did I not? She was a wicked woman. She, in fact, was a Sidonian princess. What is more, people there 
were child-sacrificing, demon-worshipping, idol-worshipping, Jew-hating people. And by the way, there was no love lost towards them by the Jews themselves. So it's quite a shocking picture. What is he doing up there in enemy territory? Perhaps some of them would have thought. Verse 22, you read the word, and behold. That's the Holy Spirit's way of taking a high letter and saying, what I'm telling you is really important. Give me your attention. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This Canaanite woman, everything I just said about the residents of Tyre and Sidon, quite likely would have applied to her, okay? And we can surmise that perhaps she worshipped a goddess called Astarte. And we can further surmise that perhaps she went to this goddess to see if she could bring relief to her daughter who was demonized, demon-oppressed. And we could even surmise even more that the reason her daughter is demon-possessed is because she's worshiping Astarte. And it made me think, that's not entirely unlike today, where, where we worship things in our culture of death and twisted sexuality, stuff, by the way, which would make the residents of Tyre and Sidon blush in comparison. We worship things in our culture of death and twisted sexuality that hurt and harm and destroy so many, though we are so smart in our modern sensibilities to think that, oh, maybe there would be some demonic activity behind it. But know that there is, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The point I'm trying to make from verses 21 and 22 is this, as we stand back. This is a bad woman coming from a bad place to Jesus. And yet, as we read on, she says something that is, and she does something that is so insightful and so beautiful. She comes to the Lord and she cries out to the Lord, Lord, she says, Son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Have mercy on me. So beautiful. And what we know about Jesus, what do we think Jesus is going to do now? This woman comes to him and says, my daughter is demonized. You, the son of David, have mercy on me. What do we think if we know anything about Jesus, Jesus is going to do right then and there? Heal her, right? Isn't that what you would think? I would think that. Do you think that? And so now, instead, you know what Jesus does? Jesus, I mean, this Jesus that we worship, he's silent to her, right? We're going to see that. He is seemingly indifferent to her. He even snubs her. But he, verse 23, did not answer a word. So not only is the first century Jewish reader shocked that he is up there in that bad place and letting a, a bad woman come to him, we're shocked because he doesn't move upon her request for mercy. Do you see that? Then maybe to break the tension, perhaps add to the tension, the disciples speak up. His disciples came in and they begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. Now, what do you think they're asking Jesus here? Some say, they're just saying, Jesus, Will you get this noisemaker out of here? 
All she does is cry out. And some say, based on Jesus' response, and this is probably uh, what they're intending is, yes, take care of her request, but, but get rid of her too, okay? She's a nuisance, she's a noisemaker. And, and, and anyway, even if that's the interpretation, they don't seem to be reflecting too much compassion, do they? They seem a bit cold-hearted. They just want Jesus to take care of her so that they can stop being annoyed by all her crying out. That brings us then to Jesus' famous quote, which many cultish groups who believe that they are the true Jews love to quote, love to misquote. He says, he's not really answering her, he's answering their request, I was sent, verse 24, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now we know that this isn't for cultist groups. And by the way, every ethnicity has had some group in their history who claims to be the true Jews and God only wants to save them. The latest rendition here, at least in the city, is black Hebrew Israelites, but every ethnicity has been hit by that. But I still want to ask the question, because maybe you are, why would Jesus say that? Why would he say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel? I mean, didn't he say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life? Didn't he say in John 10, 16, other sheep have I? They will hear my voice and they will follow me, speaking of Gentiles. So yeah, what's up with this? I think Jesus is doing a few things here. On a micro level, I think he's sort of drawing out her faith. He's going to draw out her faith, which, by the way, is going to be a rebuke to the unbelieving Jews. The unbelieving Jews had no barriers to hearing and seeing Jesus. We're going to see she had tons of barriers, and yet she presses in. So to draw out her faith and show her as an example of faith, that's the, that's the micro level stuff. On the macro level, it is good for us to remember that the gospel happened in history, right? According to a timeline, according to a sequence, according to a plan. And part of that plan was for the Jewish people under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament to be a prototype of the people of God for all time. And to this Old Covenant Israel and through this Old Covenant Israel was promised the Messiah. A Messiah who would not only save believing Jews, but also through whom the world would be blessed, to use Abrahamic language, through whom all peoples could be saved. And it's promised, by the way, foreshadowed the coming of Jesus all kinds of ways in the Old Testament. We talk about that here when we can. But if Jesus does not show that he's the promised Messiah of Israel, which is what the gospel's put on blast, then, then he can't save Gentiles, let alone Israel, because it was to Israel the Savior for the world was promised. promised. So I think in that sense, Jesus is saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Hope that makes sense. But what's remarkable now is what she does in verse 25. She does not say, this woman does not say, well, so much for you being a God of love and compassion. If that's how you're not going to answer me, you won't even talk to me. You can only talk to those guys. If that's how you're not going to answer me, I want nothing to do with you and your religion. 
But of course, she doesn't do this. What does she do? Verse 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I think we learn another lesson from this lady at this time. You ever known somebody who encountered something difficult in their life? And they tragically turn away from pursuing the Lord in that time of trial. People do that all the time. They have a trial, and they call out to God, and God doesn't answer them when they want and how they want, and so they go sideways. So learn from this woman, if that's you. She kept pressing on into the Lord, even though she, in effect, was initially stiff-armed. Now, verse 26, to the point of the introduction, the hook. Things go from, eh, a little bit problematic to seemingly downright offensive because Jesus is finally going to speak directly to her and answer her. And what he says is this. He answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Dogs, dogs. Who's the, who's, the, who's the dog right there? She is. Who's the children right there? Israel. Now, some will point out that Jesus kind of dulls the offense by using a slightly different word for dog, which refers more not so much to a wild dog, but more to a domestic dog. Still, it could be offensive. I mean, try calling your sweetheart a, a dachshund or a poodle and see how that goes, right? Dachshund, however you say it. <laughs> now, some imagine that he, maybe he, that he cracked a smile as he said that line, that a, that a twinkle emerged from his eye. So as to signal, hey, hey, hang in there. I'm going somewhere with this. Now, we don't know if he had the smile that cracked his face or the twinkle that came from his eye, but he is going somewhere. And as I said, where, this is where he's going. He's drawing out her faith. A faith that is a rebuke to Israel who had a seat at the table and would not eat. And yet she's out even at the table. And as we'll see, she will, she'll take the crumbs. She'll take the crumbs. Verse 27. Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, have you ever known somebody, and I think there is uh, a propensity for this to happen, how people can get offended for other people who think they should be offended by what somebody said when those other people aren't offended themselves in the first place? So don't do that with this woman. She doesn't gasp and say, how could you call me a poodle? You know, she doesn't do that. Instead, I love it. one commentator puts it this way. She basically says, I could not agree more. I am a dog. Now give me what dogs get. In the words of Martin Luther, she caught Jesus in his own words, and he is happy to be caught. Do you see what she's doing? And she gets more than crumbs, verse 28. Then Jesus answered, O woman, Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. 
She's commended, her request is granted, and her daughter is healed instantaneously. And so, on further reflection, perhaps a better title would be not a desperate woman meets a seemingly disinterested savior, but perhaps a better title would be a woman of great faith meets a savior of great grace. Now, I said I want to circle back and just highlight three things that I think uh, this story highlights. First of all, I believe this story highlights something that we Christians feel strongly about. It is the truth that makes us Christian, namely grace, God's grace. We often define grace as undeserved favor to who? To us who are ill-deserving sinners. You ever heard that expression? Undeserved favor to ill-deserving sinners. We can quote that quite easily as we just did. We can even concede that yes, quite readily, I'm a sinner. But I'm not sure we really fully believe the ill-deserving and undeserving part. And to that extent, we, we don't get grace as we ought. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. We're always learning more of the depths of grace, but we, that's just it. We need to know the depths of grace. And I think this failure to understand how really we are undeserving and ill-deserving comes out in, in a couple of ways. One is, have you ever encountered something difficult in your life, be it a massive crisis or even just one of those frustrating daily things that jams up your schedule? And think to yourself, if not say aloud, how could God let this happen? You ever said that? You ever thought, how could God let this happen? But what's behind that is the idea that God owes me not having bad stuff happen, right? He owes me grace. He owes me that. And when we read this story, maybe you were chafed that Jesus did not respond immediately as we thought he would. That's not what she deserved. She's laying herself out there. She's crossing all these barriers. I was reminded, listening to another pastor preach on this text, I was reminded of Romans 11.36. Who has given to God that he might be repaid? Answer. Anybody got an answer? In other words, who does God owe? Who does God owe? No one. Maybe you say, well, I'm not saying I owed stuff by God, but but I've given stuff to God. Yeah, but maybe a little bit like a kid who gives a gift at Christmas to his parent that he purchased with money from the other parent, driven to the the store to buy that by the other parent, and who perhaps was even wrapped by that parent, especially if it was to the father and the mother wrapped it. You know, like it's a nice gesture. I'm not, keep doing that, kids. But you get the point? That's That's a bit like us. You say, well, you know, I've given God myself. Hallelujah for that. But who gave you yourself? Who made you? Maybe you say, I I, I give, tithe. That's awesome. But you earn that money with the skills God gave you and the strength that God gave, gave you and the opportunity God gave you. And he says, why don't you keep most of it for yourself? God does not owe us, does he? 
Well, let, let me give a clarification. God actually does owe us something. You know what that is? The wages of sin is death. The paycheck for our sin, what we deserve, we clock in in life, sin against God, the paycheck is death. Physical death and ultimate eternal separation from him. So if you're upset with how Jesus responded, just, just take a moment, or upset how he might be responding to something in your life, take a moment to think of what you really deserve. But then Jesus gives her far more than crumbs. We saw that. He gives her far more than crumbs. It's like one commentator says, he pushes the fatted calf on the ground and says, here, eat. But I like this even better. He takes her by the hand and he lifts her up to the table and says, you can sit here, you can feast. And he, he, he gives her, he brings her to the table where he has spread for her an everlasting feast of grace and mercy and restoration. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of, of his sins, by his blood, through his grace. Verse 11, because of, of, of his grace, we have an eternal inheritance. It says in Romans, if he did not spare his son for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God's grace, I say to you, is put on display in this story. And the cool thing is how this grace is received. How is this grace received? How is it received? Well, not by your ethnicity, and not by your works, and not by your pedigree or your accomplishments. Or how, is it, how is it received? By faith. By faith. Totally undeserved, but that means God's grace is accessible to each and every person here who is willing to come by faith. So there's God's grace, number one, and now we go to great faith. He says, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Is, Jesus, is this a humdrum statement by Jesus? If we could have heard Jesus saying this, how do you think he would have said it? There's exclamation there, right? There's joy, there's commendation, there's great emotion. Listen, just because there's people out there who abuse this notion of faith, name it and claim it and all that, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater because the baby's a lot bigger than the bathwater. Faith catches the eye and moves the heart of the living God. He responds to our faith. And we see couple components of this. Her faith is perceptive. Three times she acknowledges Jesus is Lord. And behold, a Canaanite woman was coming. She cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, O Lord. Verse 25, she kneels before him, Lord. Verse 27, yes, Lord. I understand there are some people would say that she's merely being polite. Almost like in... Uh, you know, Britain days of, of uh, butlers and all that, yes, my Lord, they would say to the master of the house. I don't think that's what's going on here. Because she says something as a Canaanite woman that is very insightful. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord. What? Son of David. Son of David. Somewhere she came along this truth. He is the son of David. She's calling him the promised Messiah. 
you got to know that faith is only as good as your object. Ask that to the eight-year-old boy jumping off his garage with an umbrella, okay? Your faith in your umbrella was ill-based to faith. Here's the thing opens up. She's putting her faith in a firm object, right? She's seen to some degree anyway that Jesus is Lord and rescuer. She's perceptive in her faith. She's also persistent in her faith. You notice how Jesus piled up all these barriers, right? That she pressed through every one of them to get to him. First, she comes to Jesus, and the tense is indicating that she keeps on crying out. She won't stop crying out, but still silence, snubbed. Then, not only met with the silence of Jesus, she doesn't go away, she also is met with the coldness of the disciples. She still does not go away with that third barrier. Then, the first response of Jesus, well, I only came for the lost sheep of Israel. She still presses further and comes from a standing position and kneeling before him. And then the response of Jesus, and she says, okay, <laughs> but even the dogs get crumbs. Do you see her persistent faith? Do you see how persistent that is? She's like Jacob in the Old Testament. She is not going to stop wrestling with God until he savingly throws her hip out of joint and moves on the life of her daughter. And by the way, every movement of God, you trace out the history of revival, begins with persistent prayer, persistent prayer. So we cannot let our prayer gauntlet down here. And then, of course, there's the posture of humility. You want to miss that. She goes from standing, verse 22, to kneeling in verse 25. Now, we know kneeling before God can become ritualized like every other thing in the Christian life. But do you ever kneel before the Lord? At least in quiet from time to time, there's something about that posture that reminds us who he is and of grace that reached down and saved us. And then verse 22, she appeals to mercy alone, this great faith. Have mercy on me. She's just asking for mercy, undeserved favor. And what's interesting to me and encouraging is that Jesus' words about great faith were said to people and of people who would have been the least likely to come to him. This Canaanite women and then the centurion, uh, the centurion who had his servant healed by faith. So I just want to tell you, no matter how far you feel you are from God, well, by faith, you don't have to be. You can be dear and intimate to him. There's grace, there's faith, and finally, God's mission. We have seen that... Um, that at first blush, it does look like a desperate woman meets a seemingly disinterested Savior. But really, it was a woman of great faith meeting the Savior with great grace. And because of that, it has been said that in this powerful passage, Jesus is showing the Great Commission before commanding it as he will in Matthew 28. Of course, there's been hints all over the Gospels already. Some people say this is the most Jewish Gospel, and it is, but others say at the same time, it's also, in a way, the most Gentile Gospel. In the very genealogy of Matthew 1, you have four women mentioned, three of whom are pagans. Ruth, Rahab, and Bathsheba. And then you have a Roman centurion slave who's healed and Jesus' words is a commentary of that healing that many will come from the east and the west and sit at the table of Abraham. 
He delivers a demoniac of Gadara, and then the great confession of the centurion at the cross, which is, surely this one was the Son of God. So my point I want to make, and by the way, I don't know if, if I don't think Bathsheba was a Gentile, but Rahab and Ruth were. Jesus saves outsiders. Jesus saves outsiders. Have you ever thought of a person so bad, or a people as so bad, or so different, or so inferior, that they should not get a seat at God's table? People who've even confessed Christ in the past have thought that because of people's ethnicity, because of their political affiliation or views, because of the actions of their ancestors, because of the religion, or because of certain sins that they have committed. But here, 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 Christ gives grace to a Canaanite woman, a bad woman coming from a bad place who receives great grace because she has great faith. And likewise, we are called in the Great Commission to extend grace to anyone who will receive it. Anyone. The promise of Romans 10 is this. The same God is rich upon all who call upon him, both Jew and Gentile. So I wonder who, who knows how God might choose to use your and our prayer and intentionality to bring some Canaanites into the kingdom this year. After all, in a matter of speaking, we're all Canaanites who've been saved by great grace in Jesus Christ.